0: Alright, so now we will read the scripture. And you can find it in your Bibles in Luke. I'm going to be reading from chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of anointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. She kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him for she is a sinner and Jesus answering said to him Simon I have something to say to you and Simon answered say it teacher a certain money lender had two debtors one owed 500 denarii and the other 50 When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and yet you gave me no water for my feet. but he, he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace.
1: Thank you very much, Becca. This is the word of God. Father, I pray that as we dive into your word, illuminate our hearts, open our hearts, open our minds to what you have to say to us. Our God, we do this for your name's sake and for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, last week I mentioned how we're in this new series, sermon series on the lost art of gratitude. Because even though as soon as November 1st hit, people broke out the Mariah Carey. You know, All I want for Christmas is you. I, I saw the best meme ever this week too. It was uh, it was that part in Lord of the Rings where Legolas is saying that there's a uh, there's a foul voice on the wind and Saruman singing. All I want for Christmas is, here, is here. <laughs> We are not in the season yet. We are in the season of Thanksgiving. Uh, the, just in a couple weeks, not this Thursday, but next Thursday is a time of Thanksgiving. This is a season that we should be focusing on what we are thankful for, not what we are, what we are wanting to get. We might look at the world and ask, um, what is there to be thankful for? Inflation is up, natural disasters, sicknesses, disease, I could go on and on. When we constantly look at the lack, we miss the abundance. When we constantly look at the lack, we miss the abundance. I aim this Thanksgiving season for us to come to the realization that we are swimming in an ocean of blessing. We as believers need to resist the true favor pastime of America, which is not baseball, but complaining. The idea around this series is actually not even so much Thanksgiving as the holiday, but actually it's going to be the last last Sunday of this month, is the very start of Hanukkah. And in the story of Hanukkah, it, it includes a message that of an incredible Thanksgiving we should have as Christians, but I'll get to that in a couple weeks here. Today, I want to talk about forgiveness and healing. Last week, we started the series on the lost art of gratitude, and we began about being thankful for healing. I taught from Luke 17, and the story of the ten lepers. All ten were healed, but only one comes back. This week, I want to talk to you about being thankful for forgiven sin. There is a link between the two. It's the phrase, your faith has sozo, saved you. In the last week's story, the translation made that into the phrase, has made you well. Today it's translated as saved, and though I do believe both are correctly translated as saved, your faith has saved you. You have been saved by grace through faith, Ephesians. There is spiritual ailment much worse than leprosy. And every single one of us has this, but very few of us recognize this. Many of us see ourselves, like the Pharisee in this story, as nothing really needing to be forgiven. But if we could see inside of our hearts, we'd know that there was at least a time in our life where we were a spiritual leper, and the greatest need in America is not better government. It is not an end to COVID or climate change. It is sin. And those who have been forgiven much, love much. Speaking of gratitude, Romans 12, 9, and 10 gives us kind of our marching orders as it comes to living a life of gratitude. Let love be genuine. genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Gratitude is truly a lost art. In fact, most of the time we are more worried about getting our just desserts than we are about giving somebody else theirs. Even among those of us who live in thankfulness, how often do we express that thankfulness to God, to those around us? Do those you love know that you appreciate them? Just in these two verses, we have several guidelines in gratitude. Genuine. Genuine. Love must, let love be genuine. You know why? Because a lot of love that's being shown is not genuine. In fact, a lot of it sometimes is flattery. Someone who, who just says what you want to hear so that you'll do what they want to do. You see this often. People kind of use their relationship to try to control somebody else. I thought better of you than this. Meaning you didn't do what I wanted you to do. So now you're gonna, now you're gonna lose my good opinion. Well, why was the good opinion ever given if it was just, if it was just to be taken away when you don't do what I want you to do? And this is an abomination of genuine love. It seems nice, but it's false. Genuine love is different. It's love with knowledge. When I say Christ loves you, He doesn't love a version of you. He doesn't love some platonic, um, outer space view of you. He loves you who you are. In the midst of your greatest sin, Christ chose to die for you. But while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is a huge statement we just kind of go over. Love must be genuine. Christ knows us and loves us. So our love for other people is not predicated on our forgetfulness, but in our choice to decide to love them anyway. Abhor what is evil. Abhor a person who is just positive um, with their positivity doesn't mean anything. If you don't abhor what is evil, you are a partner with evil. That is not the same thing as genuine love or genuine gratitude. It's a person who just ignores things instead of accepting them and loving anyway. Hold fast to what is good. It's hard to cling to what is good when everyone else is saying what is good is evil, and what is evil good. But if we can't call out evil, then what good is it to say any contrast between the two? This is hard, because, you know, we thought for generations that when persecution came, we would hear people say, well, you're a Jesus freak, and that's why you need to go. That's not what you hear. You're called all the isms and all the phobes. Let me go on. Outdo. What do we have to do one another in? Showing honor. Here we come to the lost art of gratitude. It's genuine, it's loving, it holds fast. Now it needs to be expressed. What good does your love and appreciation do if you hold it in? We are told to outdo, outdo, to outdo one another in showing honor. This takes great courage. I was told one time of uh, this old couple, and uh, the man was in the church, and the wife was really upset. She's talking to the pastor. She's like, he never tells me he loves me. The old man says, I told you I loved you 50 years ago, and I'll tell you if it changes. <laughs> What good does it do to hold in our honor, hold in our love, when we are told to outdo one another in both? When you show someone honor, they may or may not honor you back, but we are not asked to reciprocate, we are asked to show, to outdo one another in showing honor. And this is how we are called to operate in the church and in our lives, to show, to love, to abhor, to hold fast, and to outdo. Why do we show gratitude? Why do we show honor? Well, in Forbes magazine, November twenty third, two thousand fourteen, author Amy Morin took a stab at this with seven scientifically proven benefits of gratitude that will motivate you to give thanks year round. I'm only going to go over four of these, and I'm just gonna—I'm not going to do the whole article for you. But here are four of the ones that caught my attention. Gratitude opens the door to more relationships. Not only does saying thank you constitute good manners, but showing Um, appreciation can help you win new friends, according to a 2014 study published in Emotion magazine. 2. Gratitude improves physical health. Grateful people experience fewer aches and pains, and they report feeling healthier than other people, according to a 2012 study published in Personality and Individual Differences. Third, Grateful people sleep better. Well, that's very nice. Instead of taking a sleeping pill, count our blessings instead of sheep. <laughs> Writing in a gratitude journal improves, uh, improves sleep according to a 2011 study published in Applied Psychology. Health and, well, health and Well-Being. Spend just 15 minutes jotting down a few grateful statements before bed, and you may sleep better and, and longer. The final one, gratitude increases mental strength. For years, research has shown gratitude not only reduces stress, but it may also play a major role in overcoming trauma. A 2006 study published in Behavior Research and Therapy found that Vietnam War veterans with higher levels of gratitude experienced lower rates of post-traumatic stress disorder. A 2003 study published in the Journal of Personality and and Social Psychology found that gratitude was a major contributor to resilience following the uh, terrorist attacks on 9-11. Recognizing all you have to be thankful for, even during the worst of times, fosters resilience. So why should you be thankful for? Forget everything I just talked about, because it doesn't matter. Because 1 Thessalonians 5.8 says this, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Amen. Amen. This is what I talked about last week. Thankfulness is the call it's not a means to an end. There is a blessing in giving gratitude. I don't have to go through all the studies, even though I just did, because I thought that was funny to do kind of like a bait-and-switch on you. Um, I don't have to go through these things. I don't care what the statistics says. I care what God's Word says. Amen. Yeah. Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain says there's lies. There's bad lies. I'm cleaning up the language. Um, and then there's statistics. You can find statistics for anything you want to try to prove. But statistics... And and go and come, but the word of God remains eternal. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In today's passage in Scripture, we have gratitude versus ingratitude. And one person not even realizing that they needed to give gratitude, to give thanksgiving. And last week we had ten people who were cleansed of leprosy. I talked last week about how leprosy, how it attacks the body, but worse than that, it isolates you from the community, to the point where nine Israelites were willing to hang out with one Samaritan for the rest of their life because they all had the same illness. All are cleansed, but only one comes back, a Samaritan, an Allogenes, a foreigner, to come to thank Jesus Christ. I start with... Healing, thankful for healing, that was this last week. Everybody was supposed to, at least once a day, share with somebody else in their life a time where God has healed them or somebody they loved. This increases our gratitude, increases our affection towards the Lord. I start with physical healing because when it comes to healing, that is almost on the side of, of, uh, of general grace in our life. Everybody experiences some form of healing, even if it's natural healing that comes from the Lord. Somebody gets over a cold. Thank you, Jesus. There should be praise and thanksgiving towards God because you know how many people who don't get over that cold and die, don't get over the flu and die. I could go on and on and on. We should be incredibly thankful, but that is that is somewhat on the side of just the natural grace that's given to everybody. I want to get into this week the grace that we are given in Christ for forgiven sin as a new creation of Jesus Christ. We have in I've split this section up into three different areas. A party, a parable, and the point. So let's get started with the party. Verses 36 through 39. I believe I have a slide for that very first point. Verse 36. I have this, uh, my first part right here, is uh, let's get this party started. It um, should be point. Um, the party. Party. There we go. Thank you very much. I needed that. Um So let's get this party started. The beginning of this section always gets me. Verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with them, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. You read the Bible, there's kind of this adversarial relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees. In fact, I think it's more surprising that Jesus ate with a Pharisee than Jesus ate with uh, prostitutes and sinners. Just because of what we know. In fact, there was just kind of this... I mean, I'm surprised that a Pharisee would want Jesus in his house after what the things that Jesus said. He called them a brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs. There was always this, and they're always trying to find something with Jesus. In fact, many people theorize that the reason why this Pharisee invited Jesus over in the first place was to hopefully, you know, get some dirt on him. And maybe that is the case as we continue reading on. But he came there and he reclined at the table. I'm going to read verse uh, 37, even though I'm still in this part right here. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, standing behind him at his feet, and I have this picture up here for a reason, because most of the time when we see this, or artists' um, descriptions of it, they get it wrong. And if you don't know about how they recline at the table... (laughs) Um, you might think, okay, so she was standing behind him at his feet. Behind him at his feet. Is that—is that like a typo? No, it's not a typo. Um, hopefully you can see my picture right here. This is how they would do their meals. They would, um, and not everybody would have those fancy red... Uh, uh, risers, they'd just be on the ground, the lower table, and they would literally lay at the table, propped up by their left arm. Which, in, in, <laughs> even today, in Middle Eastern countries, your left hand is your dirty hand. You then feed yourself with the right, and uh, then they would um, lay down and It's like that's that's cool, right? I wish we did that today. It's like let's have a meal. It's like I'm all, It's like especially for your afternoon nap, you're like already oh,
0: right there. <laughs> this is Thanksgiving week. <laughs>
1: It's like, I just get the TV with the game, and I'm, I got everything in one place. Um, so that's what that's meant, that she was behind him, but at his feet. She had had easy access to his feet, as you can see right there. Another part of this that might be weird to you is that she showed up, showed, she's there at all. I mean, what did she do? She's not invited to the meal. And that's because of a custom then, as part of courtesy, that if you were to have a famous or a well-known rabbi come to eat at your place... You open it up to the community, and now people weren't like there to go eat. They would just like hang around, like inside the house, in order to hear what the rabbi would have to say because maybe he had some pearl of wisdom he was wanting to share. I think if you remember, I talk about the role of disciples. The disciples followed the rabbi everywhere he went, and people they would come in, and that's kind of what this woman is doing. It's actually all that not out of that or, out of the ordinary at this point. He's reclining at the table. Now, I've been over to some of your house with me and my wife. I've never had anybody just pop on in and watch us while we were eating. And once again, that is because of the custom that day where you would invite all these people who would want to hear the wisdom of the rabbi. They would be there to listen. They would also be there to beg for crafts, beg for scraps after the meal was over. The woman comes to the meal as one of these people, but she has a secret motive. We know very little about this woman, in fact. It's actually kind of a healthy amount of mystery around her. We don't know if any interaction she had. She's unnamed. But she's there. She had an encounter with Jesus, and she is there for a reason. She's brought the ointment, this oil, probably for his head, but it doesn't, but her her plan doesn't go there. Let's go back to the scripture. How does it describe this woman? Verse 37, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now there are times in the gospel accounts where it talks about the sinners. The sinners is more about a class, the underclass of people, not necessarily people known for their sinning. But when it says a sinner, the verb is there is that they are known for their sinning. The only the reason, in fact, historically, we believe that, uh, many people believe that this woman was a prostitute for only two reasons. This might surprise you. It doesn't say she's a prostitute. It says she's a sinner. And it says that she she wiped his hair, his feet with her hair, so her hair was unbound. And that's what kind of leads us to believe that. Not necessarily, she's just known for her sinning. The act right here. It's a big surprise. It, 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 it interrupts the meal. Verse 37, uh, 38. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, I'm not sure what her intention was. Most people didn't anoint someone's feet, but their head with oil. It was a refreshing act for a traveler. You kind of cool them down. It was kind of a way of getting ready for the rest of the day after you've traveled quite a bit. But what happens is a major interruption. She starts weeping. I don't know if the Lord has ever made you weep. It breaks, it breaks whatever plans you had to do. And I, don't, I mean, I, this is obviously not the like, good looking Hollywood weeping where the single tear falls down their face. <laughs> this is the real sobbing weeping. Snot and tears going everywhere. Her tears drop on his feet. She had this alabaster jar, and what that looked like was more like a vase with a long face, with a long neck. And you'd break the neck in order to release the oil and release the ointment. She washes his feet. Her tears wash his feet. She wipes them with her hair. A woman's hair is her glory, 1 Corinthians 11.15. Let's assume she is a prostitute. Everybody knows she's a prostitute. She only had a little bit of dignity and self-respect left. But she then uses that to worship Jesus. She then uses, uses that to thank Jesus, to love Jesus. That, 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 that's so powerful. That's all she had. And that's what she's willing to give. There's a song, I guess I'm, I'm, now I'm skipping even past Christmas, there's a song called The Deep, Deep Midwinter, um, which nobody wants to think about right now. It was written by an English woman. It's often, like, it often gets attributed to the Irish. Um, I don't know why, but it does. Um, and there's this line in there that always like, oh, it gets me so so much. And it's, If I was a shepherd, I would bring a sheep. If I was a wise man, I would do my part. What can I give him, poor as I am? I know I'll give my heart. The last bit of what she had, she gratefully gives. She wipes, she wipes his feet with her hair. It's all she had to give. Then she anoints his feet with the oil. Once again, a weird thing to do, but it's a spiritual and a scriptural thing to do. For Isaiah says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. This is something I always take on faith, because I think feet are ugly. <laughs> I just do, because they are, and they're gross. So I read this passage and I'm kind of like weirded out but I get it, you know. Um, so what happens the Simon the Pharisee he mutters to himself verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited who invited him saw this he said to him, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who had what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. He mutters to himself and Jesus answers him in his mutterings. He's thinking about it, Jesus answers him in his thoughts. Because he was God. I remember as a young kid, we like rarely went to church. So when we'd go to church, I always thought like the pastor or priest could like read my mind. So I'd always try to like think of like good things. Because I didn't want him to be like Jason Fisher. <laughs> don't worry, God hasn't given me the power to read your minds either. So those of you are starting to sweat over me He's thinking this, and Jesus answers his thoughts. He's muttering to himself, maybe not even saying it out loud, Simon the Pharisee mutters to himself some very unkind things. He calls into question Jesus' knowledge, his status as a prophet, and his very decency. Big surprise. Right before this section, Jesus gives a sermon about how, he's like, what should I like in this generation to? You're like, kids in the market, who are like, we planted dirge for you, and you didn't weep. We played a jig, and you didn't dance. Always something to complain about. Always some way of trying to dismiss Christ. And that's what this Pharisee's doing right here. He's waiting for his opportunity to dismiss Christ as, as a prophet. You ever meet somebody who just hates you, and there's nothing you can do about it? Jesus dealt with this. In fact, many people are like, well, if Christians acted more like Christ, people would like them more. They crucified Jesus. I mean, you get that? They hated him for his love. That's what Simon doesn't like about Jesus. Jesus loved this woman like he loved Simon. In fact, when we look at the adversarial aspect of Jesus and the Pharisees, like I said before, I'm kind of like, Jesus ate at the Pharisees' house? Of course he did. He ate at the house of sinners all the time. He's muttering to himself, he's calling all these things in question, He doesn't realize the Savior is there. Of course he doesn't, because he doesn't think he needs saving. This Pharisee is so self-righteous, he doesn't realize the Savior is in his house. But of course he doesn't. He doesn't think he needs a Savior. He says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who was this sort of woman woman this, this is, and who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So he's like, I'm clean, she's unclean. And she's touching him. I said this last week, and I mean, maybe I say this this whole thing. I don't know because I haven't done the rest of the sermons in this series yet. Touching Jesus doesn't make you unclean; doesn't make Him unclean. It makes you clean. I think I've got that, that that quote right up there. Touching Jesus doesn't make Him unclean; it makes you clean. Amen. I sure hope that there's nobody missing today because they think if I come here, how dare I come here? I'd be a hypocrite. I sin so much. I'm like this woman, a sinner, a woman of the city, a man of the city, and I am a sinner. How can I come there? You know how crazy that is? I'd be like, I'm not going to go to the doctor because I'm sick. I'm going to wait till I get better, then I'm going to go. It's the sick who need a physician, not the healthy. And all of us are sick. If this man were a prophet, he would know who, what, who it was and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Touching Jesus doesn't make him unclean, it makes you clean. And every single one of us know that, experience that, and have experienced that. Because we can look at our life, if we look through self-righteousness, we'll be like Simon, and we'll say, why does Jesus, why does Jesus love these people when I'm one of the good people? And we have our thing, good people and bad people, not forgiven people and unforgiven people. So, Jesus in uh, verse 40, and this is in the parable, my second point, a parable. Verse 40, And Jesus answered, uh, and Jesus answered, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. If the Lord ever says, Hey, come over here, I have something to say to you, it's not going to go very well. It's time to go past the woodshed, right? Hey, I've got something to say to you. It's like the principal. Why don't you meet me in my office? Ooh. Something's going on. And you can see that in his response. Say it, teacher. Now, what do you have to say, master? What do you have to say, rabbi? Say it, teacher. The, cur- the crudeness of the way he responds. Jesus confronts this man's unloving attitude. Look at how Jesus confronts this unloving attitude. I have something to tell you. It's not good when Jesus uses that verbiage. You are in trouble. Furthermore, Jesus gives a parable. Let's give it a little bit of a review of parables. Parables are not allegories. Parables are an earthly story that communicates a heavenly truth. And when Jesus started speaking in parables, his disciples asked him, We started exclusively teaching parables. Why do you teach in parables, teacher? You can go back in the Wayback Machine when when I did my sermon on the parable of the four soils. And I said in there, Jesus quotes from Isaiah, Isaiah's commission. God tells him, that they will be ever hearing, but not understanding. It's a judgment. This is one of Jesus' more easier parables, and Simon actually understands it, but he doesn't understand it. It's about the indebtedness of sin. Verse 41. A certain money moneylender had two debtors. One owed five hundred denarii. Denarius, in that day, was one day's wage. And the other fifty and they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. It's about the indebtedness of sin. This is one of the simpler parables of Christ. easy to understand the point, but very difficult to apply. Sin creates a debt between you and God, and the bill comes due. This last, um, not this last week, the week of um, Halloween, I had an article in the paper of the Kastuth County Leader. I would highly suggest to find that if you still can. In fact, I'll probably post it out there. And I call it something really scary. I talk about how really all of the fears that people worship, that entertain themselves during Halloween, they're petty, they're petty procrastinating fears, because None of that is something somebody should be afraid of. Jesus said, do not fear the one who can kill the body, but the one who can kill the body, then afterwards throw the soul into hell. Amen. He's speaking of himself and the Lord. There's truly a truth priori- here throughout all of humanity. When I die, I stand before the just. Will I be counted as just? Or will I get what I've been paying, for, what I've been working for all my life? That is something truly... Scary. All of us are indebted in our sin towards God, and the bill comes due. All sin creates debt. Some people think that debt is a small thing, but whether it's a hundred, or a million, or a hundred million, if you can't pay it, what does it matter how much it is? Simon hears this, and he answers correctly, but here's the thing. He thinks himself is the one who owes the smaller amount of debt. No, Simon, you owe the same debt as she said, you are no beggar than You should be wetting the Savior's feet with your tears and wiping it with your hair. I put on my, my sub-point here, Jesus doesn't need to be cool, because he saves. When I was first in youth ministry, there was a big emphasis on making Jesus cool for teenagers. By the way, there's nothing less cool than an adult trying to be cool to teenagers. <laughs> just by heart. Sometimes, like kind of mockingly, I'll use teenager language, and then sometimes I use it too much and I start using it like in my day day like totes, right? I don't think anybody needs <laughs> that anymore. That's on <laughs> So there was this big there's this big emphasis on being relevant. In fact, there was a magazine called Relevant. It hasn't been relevant to me like the longest time. It's another way of saying cool. I said before, there's nothing more pathetic than an adult, a grown person, trying to be cool to a teenager. My response has always been, it doesn't matter if Jesus is cool or not. The question is, does he save? Does he save? You know, the movie just came out, and I, I kind of hate this, because now everybody's going to act like they're an expert without reading the book. Um, Dune. Um, there's this part that's not in the movie, that's in the book, that always struck me. Because there's a... I'm not going to go over the whole um, plot or anything, but there's different organizations that are at war with one another. And the uh, heir to one of the houses asked asked the main guard, he asked him, would you betray my father? Because they know there's a rat. They know that there's, there's a traitor in the house. And he tells him, any person who raised their hands against your father, I will cut it off as a prelude to their death. He saved me from a prison pit. And I'm like, that's how I feel about Jesus. I don't care if he's cool. he saved me. I was in a pit of sin, and he saved me from it. I was in a pit of despair, and he saved me from it. I've been sick, and he's healed me. I have been lost, and I have been found. I was blind, but now I see. He doesn't need to be cool. He saves. Amen. And Simon doesn't realize that he has so much need to be saved. An answer given but not happily. You can hear the attitude of Simon in this, can't you? I suppose. What do you mean you suppose? It's obvious. What do you mean you suppose? He doesn't understand. I mean he understands, but he doesn't understand. He thinks he is so much above this woman, he's like floating on air. No, Simon, you are the one who needs to be forgiven much. Verse 44 through forty through fifty, it's revealed how Simon he missed the point. I like this meme, put it on the thing here. The point. There's Simon, flying somewhere in outer space. He doesn't get the point. He's like, yeah, of course I don't like Jesus much. I don't have much to be forgiven for. There are three main aspects of courtesy that Simon did not observe, which was an insult to Jesus. And Jesus reveals these to Simon as a very, very nice way of telling Simon, you're not perfect either. Other Pharisees he calls hypocrites, vipers, whitewashed tombs. There's a section in which he curses them seven times. But here are just three aspects of hospitality, Simon. Forgot that this woman didn't. One, one of the things you did in that day, and I I repeat, in that day, when you greeted one another, you greeted them with a holy kiss. You'd grab them by the shoulders, and you'd bring them in, and you'd give them a big, big kiss on the cheek. That was then, not now. If I come to your house and you grab a hold of me and try to bring me close, I'm gonna I'm gonna put up the fence. Simon slights Christ, he does not greet him. Probably leads to the credence that he was just bringing him there as kind of a as kind of a trap. This woman is kissing Jesus' feet. Water for his feet. Because in that time he didn't have socks and shoes. You walked around on the dust of the streets with sandals. Your feet got gross. and more disgusting than feet normally are. And uh, when you'd sit down for a meal, um, your uh, your host was supposed to bring you a basin of water so you could clean up your feet before the meal started. Simon doesn't do this. Or you'd have a servant come and do it. And you know, that when Jesus washes the disciples' feet, he lowers himself to the servant who would wash somebody's feet. Simon doesn't provide any water for... Christ's feet, but this woman has washed his feet with her own tears, and has wiped them with her very hair. This woman has shown much love towards the Savior. Third, oil for his head. So this would be one of the things that you would do as the, before the meal got started. You'd give each one of your guests oil for their head. This is something you refreshed yourself. It made you look better too. In fact, Jesus said when you're fasting, make sure you put oil in your hair. Now, I don't think we do that anymore. I mean, I haven't seen any greasy heads out here, so that's good. Um, but that was something that just refreshed you and cooled you down from the hot day. Simon doesn't do this. Simon the Pharisee, But she has anointed his feet with expensive perfume from an alabaster box. A long neck bottle that when you used it, you had to break it. And that was just for his feet. Simon needs forgiveness. The big problem Simon has, and the big problem so many people have, is that they need forgiveness, but they don't think they do. We say things like, I know I'm not perfect, but... That's my favorite hypocritical thing people say. I know I'm not perfect, but let me tell you why I'm better than somebody else. That's what that means. I'm not perfect or anything, but man, Jill, hopefully nobody hears name's Jill, um, she really gossips a lot. One of my favorite things, especially like when I was in high school, is people would, would tell me about how much other people gossiped. Which, by the way, is gossipy. Amen. <laughs> hey, That would be like, you know, other people like to hit other people while you're, like, punching somebody. So many people, they don't realize their need for forgiveness, so they don't think they have much to love Jesus for. Bill Maher used to have a show on ABC, before he had the show on HBO, um, called Politically Incorrect. And I remember watching this as a teenager, and I remember they would have, like, one Christian on, and then, like, five, like, atheists and stuff, because Bill Maher is an agnostic atheist, and um, one time, one of these Christian people were on, and um, he said, made the statement, uh, Christians are just really arrogant. And she said to him, "What's so arrogant from one of one beggar telling another beggar where to find food?" I was like, "That's really good." He had probably the most honest answer I've ever heard for anybody saying this. He says, "But I'm not hungry." Simon's not hungry. He's filled himself up on self-righteousness. Why does he need the righteousness of Christ? So, for Bill Maher, why does he think he needs the righteousness of Christ? He has his own righteousness. He's filled himself up on all of the things that do not fill. He's not hungry. Neither is Simon. Simon is the older brother of Christ's parable about the prodigal son. Better called the parable of the two lost sons. Mm. The younger son goes into the faraway land and lives lives riotously. I love that word much better than any other word that gets translated riotously. Like, he he goes for it. every bit of sin. He indulges, and he comes back going to sell himself as a slave to his father, and his father won't hear of it. He makes him his son again. There's a party at the house, and the older brother is sitting outside muttering. Doesn't he know what kind of person that is, my younger brother? If my father was a prophet, he wouldn't let him touch him. That's not what he says. He says, this son of yours, he, got, he doesn't say my brother, he says, this son of yours has wasted your wealth in wild living. And here I've been slaving for you. And you've not given me so much as a could. That's the older brother attitude. I have nothing to be saved for. I'm already righteous, but both are completely lost. Only one, though, had come to the father and is in the father's is in the father's peace and the other is outside and that is Simon. The point here is the point. Simon may have missed this point but there was somebody who did not miss the point of this of this situation this story this happening. The woman in this story is not named. I said before, there's a healthy amount of mystery around her, because we don't know anything about her. We don't even know what interaction she had with Jesus before then. We just know that there was something amazing, because she knew that she was forgiven. Because we don't know who she is, unfortunately then, we kind of uh, make make a a merging of different women in Scripture of this, like, one woman. And actually, there's like three that get mistaken for this one woman. We have the woman herself, we have Mary, Mary Magdalene, and we have Mary of Bethany. These are three separate women in the scripture. Um, a pope during one of the Easter celebrations conflated the three, and ever since then, we believe that Mary Magdalene is a prostitute. And uh, there's no, there's no, there's there's nothing to suggest that at all. Um, these are different. Uh, these are different women. In fact, Mary Mary Bethany and Mary Magdalene are two different women because Magdalene and Bethany are places, and they are from different places. In the scriptural account, these are three different women. Um, there, When it comes to this, there are a lot of articles very upset about this. I was reading a few this week, and they are like, well, it's just misogyny that's led um, us to conflate all these three women together. It's just uh, patriarchy, sexism, and they go on and on and on. And I'm reading this, and actually, I, I came to this revelation last year when I was preaching on Mary and Bethany, and I was like, you know one person who would not be... Upset that she got mistaken for this woman, Mary of Bethany. Let me tell you why. In John 11, Mary's brother was sick. Her and her family were friends of Jesus. I say friends because when Jesus was ministering in Jerusalem, he traveled to Bethany every night to stay with them. Sign of deep friendship. Her brother gets sick, deadly sick, and Jesus he postpones his trip over there on purpose until he knows he's dead. And then he shows up. He, he, he first encounters Mary's um, older sister, Martha, who says to him, if you were here, my brother would not have died. For Martha, he gives her this incredible message that he's the resurrection and the life. Her brother will be alive again. She's like, I know that at the resurrection, some future resurrection. Then Jesus gets over to Mary, and Mary is broken in tears. And she says to him the same thing Martha did. If you were here, my brother would not have done Have you said those those same words? Maybe not not those exact same words, but you're like, God, if you were here, this wouldn't have happened. My mom my father wouldn't have died. My child wouldn't have gotten cancer. I wouldn't have got divorced. I wouldn't have lost that job. Where are you? For Mary, the Lord, doesn't give a sermon. We have the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. That brother of hers was Lazarus, and Jesus raised him from the dead. Mary waits for Jesus to have another party, very much like the one we have right here. Go back to my first slide. No, not first slide, number one, the party. Mary was was the friend of Jesus Christ, same with Martha and Lazarus. She would sit at Christ's feet, a place of honor only for a disciple. What I'm saying here is she knew the stories of Jesus Christ before she met him as well, just as everybody did. We're reading this in the Gospel of Luke. Luke is an aggregate of eyewitness accounts. This story is known. So Mary hears this story of a woman at a party who comes over to Christ, starts weeping, washes his feet with her tears, and wipes it with her hair, and now she has her moment. It's her time for suffering. Her brother dies. She comes to Christ, and she says, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. It sounds something like, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And when Christ raises Lazarus from the dead, she realizes something. That Simon. Did. I am that woman. I realized this last year, and you guys know I'm not a crier. And I'm telling my wife about this, and I can't even get through it. I want my worship to be that sweet to Christ. I want to have such a revelation of my own sin that I love Christ that much. I don't want to be like Simon. I want to be like Mary, that even though in times of hurt, When I've said stupid things, I've been disobedient, that I know that Christ still loves me, and that He's forgiven me, and that inflames my love for Him. One of my slides here. Our love expressed in worship towards the Savior is in direct proportion to our view of our own sin. Our love expressed in worship is in direct proportion of our view of our own sin. I'll talk to people about their testimony, and they'll tell me, I don't have a testimony. I didn't do drugs. I wasn't all these things. I didn't kill people. You have such a low view of your own sin. Why did Christ need to come save you? You are already good. But if you realize, like Mary, Mary is a noble, high woman. She has a pint of pure nard. But if she could humble herself to realize, I'm no different from that one our love for Christ, our worship. You're wondering why your worship isn't so great. Don't be like Simon, who thinks, well, I don't have much to be forgiven, therefore I don't need to love much. No, I am the chief of all sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. You know who said that? A Pharisee who got the point. Pharisee who got the point. Do we get the point? Are we thankful for forgiveness? Sometimes I'm in services, sometimes I watch pastors, and, and and they try to treat a low thing, salvation. Oh, it's not a low thing. It's not just my, it's not my hell insurance, my card to get into the door, and now I'm going to go into deeper spiritual things. No, the constant revelation of my sin grows my affection towards Christ, which then is revealed itself into worship. You wouldn't have problems worshiping on any day of the week. And I'm not just talking about Sunday morning, before worship is more than singing. We wouldn't have a problem with worship if we realized the depths of our own depravity, not the problems in this world, but for myself, because I've been forgiven much, I must love much. Worship. We see with Mary and the woman is what we should see with us. Our debt of sin is no less than theirs. If we show less love, it's because we have a low view of our own sin. And our love expressed towards the Savior is direct proportion of our view on our own sin. In verse 49, we get more grumbling. So if you are not, if you haven't had enough of grumbling today, we have got more grumbling. Verse 49. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Or, verse 49. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sin? People are okay with a a healer, a miracle worker, but a sin savior? Not so much. Verse 50. 50, And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That same word there is sozo. Your faith has saved you made you well, your faith has redeemed you, your faith has saved you. The great cause for continued joy in thanksgiving and gratitude is forgiven sin. Worship team, would you come up at this point? This week, I want you to be thankful for forgiveness. I want you to meditate on what you've been forgiven of. Not just that salvation. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed on the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, it is well with my skill. God is continuing to forgive us even after salvation because we continue to sin. We don't teach sinless, we don't talk, talk about the perfection of the believer in sinless perfection, but of the imputed righteousness of Christ. So we do continue to sin and Christ continues to forgive us. We should not continue to sin so that Christ may forgive us. Absolutely not. But as we continue to sin, the Holy Spirit reveals to us ways we've sinned. So can I tell you about a time where hashtag thankful for forgiveness I've been? By the way, if you're going to do it online, use hashtag thankful for forgiveness, number four. Um, this was a number of years ago. Um, I am, I'm like, I'm not half the man, but I'm like three quarters of the man I used to be. Um, I lost uh, something like 50, 60 or so pounds. And um, what had happened was, um, I've had heart palpitations for a while, and so I went to the doctor, I got tested, and uh, they wanted to put me on medication, I'm like, well, what happens if I don't take medication? They're like, nothing, it's uncomfortable, I'm like, I can live with that. And they're like, do you want to do blood work to make sure that are like, you know, your step isn't high? I'm like, oh yeah, absolutely, I do. So I come back from, um, after blood work, and they tell me that you have type 2 diabetes. And I, I'm, I'm on my way home, and I don't even tell my wife for the first couple of days, and I, I'm, just, I'm just ashamed. Because I'm like, I, I didn't realize the harm I was doing to my body. I, I just didn't. If the Holy Spirit starts working on me. He doesn't let me just wallow in self-pity and shame. That does no good. That's just really guilt. Yep. He turns into conviction. And I don't know about you, I can just say about me. But I was using food, like other people use alcohol or, or cigarettes. It was my stress relief. It was a thing I went to to com- comfort myself. It was the thing that I used when I was just bored or whatever. In other words, it was my God. It was an idol in my life. And there's nothing that God looks at and does not say, mine. When I want comfort, I don't go to God. I'm withholding from Him what is His rightful possession. For surely He bore our sorrows and took our suffering. I am thankful for forgiveness, because in the sin of gluttony, I didn't realize I was trying to usurp Christ's place. The worship team is going to lead us in our final song today. I want you to have a time of meditation, a time of thanksgiving and praise, in which you can put this into practice, and you can think in your own life, what is forgiven sin I can be happy for, I can be grateful for? A time where I can have a sweet worship to God where, metaphorically, I can come into His chambers, weep over His feet, and wipe His feet with my hair. Worship team, would you please do this?